So I'm really pleased to first introduce uh, Keith Gomez, who many of you know. He's uh, the chair of our haemostasis and uh, thrombosis task force and has been instrumental for producing many of our guidance. He works at the Haemophilia Centre in the Wolfrey Hospital, and he's president of the British Society of Haemostasis and Thrombosis. So Keith's going to present on the clinical and lab diagnosis of heritable platelet disorders, and I'm going to hand over to him. Thank you very much, Keith. Hello, my name's Keith Gomez, and I'm the chair of the Haemostasis and Thrombosis Task Force. Today, I'm going to take you through a new guideline on the clinical and laboratory diagnosis of heritable disorders or platelets. Perhaps the first thing to be aware of is that these are relatively common disorders. And if we look in this extract from the National Haemophilia Database from 2019, we can see that the heritable platelet disorders are in fact the fourth most common category. Now, there's twice as many females as males registered in the database, despite the fact that these are mostly autosomal disorders. And then, of course, flex symptoms due to menorrhagia and peripartum bleeding. And it's important to recognise that these represent about nearly 10% of the total number of registered patients in the UK. Now, it's been 10 years since the previous BSH guideline, and a great deal has changed in that time. The scope for this new guideline has two key differences to the previous edition. The first is that whereas we previously focused just on the laboratory diagnosis, this new guideline very much also includes clinical diagnosis. And the other key difference is that whereas the previous guideline focused on platelet function disorders, we are now considering an overarching category of heritable platelet disorder that includes both functional disorders and heritable thrombocytopenia. And this is reflected in some changes in the National Haemophilia Database with a new registration category of heritable plate disorders to include both of these types of condition. The guideline is split up into various sections. And for this talk, I'm going to mostly focus on those that are relevant in the clinical setting and also go through some of the cases that appear in the online appendix to highlight some of the issues that we face when we're diagnosing these conditions. Now, in the rest of this talk, when I'm showing you an actual recommendation from the guideline, that will appear in green italics. And just to remind you of the grading that we use in BSH, the a grade one recommendation is one that should be used in the majority of cases, but a grade two recommendation is a suggestion for practice. When we consider the clinical evaluation of these patients, bleeding assessment tools are extremely useful to help us to standardise the way in which we capture the bleeding history. And these were, of course, first introduced to assist in the diagnosis of conditions like von Willebrand's disease, and they've now been adapted for use in other mild bleeding disorders. And perhaps the one that's most commonly used is the one on the ISDH website, and you can download their tool. Now, when these tools were first introduced, there were high hopes that they could be used as a screening tool to indicate which patients would need to be referred for laboratory analysis. But it's now clear that they lack the sensitivity to allow them to be used in this way. Now, for the majority of these disorders, 
the phenotype is simply affecting the platelets and therefore the symptoms are simply to do with bleeding. But we do have to be aware that a minority of them have very significant non-hemostatic features and examples of those are shown in this list here. Now, while some of them, skeletal abnormalities, for example, should be reasonably obviously seen, others have to be screened for and monitored for, and if necessary, preventative measures taken to stop patients developing these relatively serious complications. So as these are relatively common disorders that present both to specialist centers and in a district general setting, the key question is, can we diagnose them outside a hemophilia center and the answer, unfortunately, is generally no, or at least they can't be reliably excluded. And the reasons for that are shown on this slide. We know that most of the assays that uh, are required, particularly those involving platelet function, require specialist techniques and highly trained staff, mostly BMS band sixes or sevens. Uh, and those can't be done outside of a haemophilia center. Unfortunately, platelets are prone to activation when they're transported to the testing laboratory from another site by medical couriers. And so we can't reliably assess function in that way. Although interestingly, there's some data showing that transporting samples via vacuum tubes does seem to work okay. And perhaps most importantly, the use of point of care tests such as the PFA they really aren't useful in screening because they're not sensitive to these mild disorders. They only pick up about 60% of them. So the next question is, of course, which patients should be referred for investigation in the hemophilia center? And of course, that's mostly indicated by the nature of the bleeding history that can allow us to differentiate between those that are due to surgical bleeding and those that are not, perhaps because the bleeding is occurring at multiple different sites. Taking a good family history is, of course, critically important because most of these disorders are dominantly inherited. And so there should be a positive family history. Although, of course, we have to be aware of whether or not relatives have had hemostatic challenges. Those that are recessive, there may, of course, be no family history, but there may be other features such as consanguinity. And then when these patients do get referred, the, we obviously carry out the tests that are, were shown on the previous slide. And then what's important is that we exclude other disorders and then we ensure that they're reproducible. So that means testing perhaps on several occasions, months apart. There are several recommendations specifically for laboratory diabetes. And I'm just gonna go through some of the key ones here. Genetic analysis is now freely available to everyone on the National Health Service. And that should of course be offered to all patients, generally using a gene panel technique that covers the 60 or 70 genes that are known to cause peripheral platelet disease. And those are the ones that are listed on the ISTH website. One of the things we do have to be aware of is that for those conditions which have significant platelet morphology abnormality, particularly those with giant platelets. The impedance-based counting can underestimate the number of platelets significantly, uh, perhaps making the difference between having a platelet count of 30 or 40 and requiring platelet transfusion, when in reality the platelet count may well be 70 or 80. If you use an optical or fluorescence technique, 
Uh, and so most of us do have access to those, although they may not be the default technique used in our machines. And one of the reasons for that is that the impedance method misses some of the large platelets, and that can also be demonstrated by looking at the mean platelet volume, which again is something which is routinely available in most analyzers, but sometimes is suppressed or hidden, uh, and that should be used. And in fact, I find that looking at the platelet histogram can be really very informative because the normal histogram is actually quite straightforward. But when you look at patients who have large or giant platelets, you often see this either a, a second peak on the right-hand side or perhaps even the whole curve being shifted to the right. And you can see here clearly why, for example, the impedance methods might not uh, count all the platelets because often they're gated to just take a window up to about perhaps about 12 or 13 femtoliters and therefore will miss many of the large platelets. One of the key problems for the laboratory is the lack of standardization for light transmission aggregometry. And there remains a lack of evidence that prevents us from producing grade one evidence. And instead we have produced suggestions for how panels might be formed. The guideline contains a table with suggested agonists that might be used in an initial panel and then might be extended if further investigation is required. And also importantly contains this suggestion for what might be used as a minimum panel for cases where there's a small volume, perhaps small children. And the aim really is just to exclude a severe disorder with perhaps a the possibility of a milder disorder being diagnosed when a child gets older. And that can be important in, for example, cases of non-accidental injury. So I'm going to finish by going through three of the 10 cases that appear in the appendix. Now, when considering these cases, you should assume that they all have normal levels of clotting factors such as von Willebrand factor. One of the common scenarios that we have to deal with are those where there are relatively mild abnormalities in light transmission aggregometry, and this is such a case. A 28-year-old female had a really quite strong bleeding history requiring transfusion after, for periods and also after delivery, and also requiring cauterization, giving her a BAT score of 10. And perhaps what was striking here was that there was a very strong family history as well, with all of her female relatives that were older than her requiring transfusion after delivery and hysterectomy for bleeding before the age of 40 years. When we looked at her light transmission agrogometry, we could see that she had a relatively normal response to the strong agonists, uh, ristocetin, arachidonic acid and collagen here. But if you look at the weaker agonists, so ADP in blue here, showing uh, an impaired response, and adrenaline is in red, absolutely no response at all. We were fortunate to be able to bring up both the mother and sister, and they had really very similar patterns. And this was one of the first families that I put into the Bridge BPD study, and I was very hopeful that we'd find some variants, but in fact, we didn't. But because of that strong family history and the abnormalities only really showing up on platelet aggregation, we were nevertheless able to diagnose them with a heritable platelet disorder, but in this case, the underlying molecular basis remains uncharacterized. 
And this is the sort of defect that in some laboratories has been referred to as a weak agonist response defect. The second case highlights the importance of having multiple different techniques available in the laboratory for assessing platelet function. So again, we have a 50-year-old female with a history of excessive bleeding, perhaps not quite as severe as the previous case because her bleeding score is six. Uh, and interestingly, there was no family history here, although that may have been because she only really had male relatives. Uh, she had a brother and two uncles. There were no other clinical features that were of significance. So when we looked at her aggregation, we found a pretty normal pattern. You can see that with both the strong agonists and the weak agonists, ADP and adrenaline here, there's a pretty normal response. But if we then look at secretion, so here you've got aggregometry traces at the top. Uh, this is in a Lumi aggregometer, but ATP release at the bottom here, you can see that there's absolutely no ATP release. And then when we look at the platelet nucleotides, this is using a lysis assay, we can see a very marked deficiency of platelet ADP, giving a very high ATP ADP ratio. And this is the classical pattern that we see with a storage pool disorder. And obviously that would be missed if you just relied on the aggregometry by itself. Now, the issue here is that in a NECRAS survey from a few years ago, only half of the respondents that measured plate aggregation also measured secretion. And so that's a cause for concern because while platelet lysates can be sent away for analysis in another laboratory, secretion has to be done at the same time as aggregation on fresh platelets. And finally, I'm going to show you a case that demonstrates that even conditions with non-hemostatic features that are heritable can present relatively late in life. So this is a 77-year-old woman with a lifelong history of bleeding, particularly after hemostatic challenges such as surgery. And she also had a history of visual abnormalities, although these had largely been ignored. She was now at a stage where surgery was being considered for rectal bleeding. On this slide showing the patient's aggregation and secretion tracings, the first thing to say is that the patient's tracings are in blue, and you've got, first of all, with ADP, the controls in black, and you can see relatively normal aggregation here. And then when we look at arachidonic acid, the controls in red, again, relatively normal, and also a normal response to adrenaline. But if we look at the secretion traces, we can see that green is the control, black is the patient. And again, a very, very big difference here, no secretion at all just uh, reiterating how important it is that we include secretion in our analysis. So again, looking potentially uh, as if this is a storage pool disorder, and that was confirmed by genetic analysis, in this case done through the GAP study. And that showed homozygosity for a variant in this DTM-BP1 gene, which results in a null variant. And this gene is part of the, or produces a protein that's part of the block one complex. Uh, that's important in organelle production, 
And in this case, of course, the organelle that we're interested in is the dense granule. And the abnormalities here result in hermansky pudlak syndrome, which of course also explains her ocular symptoms. And you might ask, well, why, why does she not have al albinism? And perhaps in hindsight, she does have albinism, but that can be quite a difficult thing to diagnose in, in a white Caucasian background. So I'm going to finish there and happy to take any questions. Thank you very much, Keith. That was a really great overview of that guideline that I'm sure will be really useful.